welcome to the SQology podcast. This is Cliff, and I am on the road with Dan Ungaro. See, because he knows how to say his name, and I don't. And we have been on the road now for since Monday, and it is now Thursday evening, and we are just now getting a microphone out. So we pretty much said everything there needs to be said already. Do you have anything to add to that? It's been to get to know you. It's been real. And it's been good, but it ain't. Uh, yeah, it's been real good. It's It's been real good. So we've been all over like 2% of Texas so far, I think. We started in Austin, where we had an Esquiology event on Sunday. We had, I believe, nine competitors at the Tent World in Hutto, Texas, following an IASCA judges training that Travis Chin and Keith Turner had there for Jeremy Price. And that was one week after the Mecca judges training that Jeremy Price and his wife Andrea and Dean Elsey and I and my son were at the week before, along with some others. Uh, so they've actually getting some judges kicked up in Texas. I think Jeremy's going to do a good job of doing some events. So we're kind of cutting him loose with some of the Eschiology light events to get going down in Texas. And we went from Austin to San Antonio, and we saw the Alamo there, and somebody died there. We found out. Who was that? Davy Crockett. See, that's why you're here. And he used a butter knife in his uh, battles, which we found from Wikipedia, which is always right. And I'm pretty sure that's why everybody died at the Alamo. I'm not sure if it's too soon. Is that too soon? I think you're treading on some people's feelings right now, talking con words about Davy Crockett, so I, you might want to back off on that. Okay. Well, I'm just going to present, pretend that I'm wearing a coonskin hat, and I'll be fine. I'm good at mispronouncing names and, and you know gaffes in general, so that's why I go around with a mic and, and camera in my face at all times on this entire trip. Good thing there's an edit button. Yeah, I, I like the edit button. As long as you don't use the edit button to uh, edit into all the bad things I did into a supercut. Oh, trust me. Trust me. There's there's enough for that. All right. Well, I took a picture while you were sleeping just in case if I need it for, you know, I'm I'm not sure if there's... Totally comfortable with that. Don't care. Okay. Not worried. So we went from San Antonio, which was fun. We... Uh, we have some new friends there. We, I'm pretty sure we parked illegally uh, at one point, but you know who's going to stop us? Calling me out on that? Come on, man. The police might be listening. Oh, sorry, it was totally legally parked, and his plates are from Arkansas anyway, so it doesn't matter. And then uh, we went from there to, I guess we ended up around Houston area, and we went some places there. We found we. We accidentally found your, uh, well, I we guess our... Daniel there. Yeah. yeah, we ran into Daniel. Just like, we just randomly pulled into a uh, a shop that had audio in the description under there. Just see who's there. And uh, underneath the truck, the first guy I saw was Daniel, uh, who I've hung out with at Knowledge Fest, and he's been in my store and all that stuff. And it was kind of cool to, to see him. It's been a while. So For anybody that has seen it, he owned 
I think he sold it since then, right? But he owned the green, lime green beetle, the, the sound skins, was in the sound skins booth a couple of years ago at Knowledge Fest that um, was built at, uh, well, part of the audio was done at Mobile Toys. And uh, so, yeah, it was pretty cool just literally stopping on the side of the road. Audio was in between, I think, like lift kits and truck accessories or something like that in the sign. I don't know how Dan saw it, but he did, and he had this inspiration to pull off the side of the road for no reason. And uh, literally out from underneath the truck pops Daniel. So that was that was cool. And then we went up to see Chris Pate at Mobile Toys, which you have not been to the MTI Acoustics area, right? Yeah, that was my first time seeing the actual like production facility, and it was it was really impressive. I was, you know, that, I've had dreams of stuff like that before, and I, to see it right there was, you know, it was it was really cool. I'm really happy for Chris for that. Yeah, he's. I don't think we even we didn't even make it to the retail store, but yeah, it's uh, he's got lots of cool projects he's working on there. Lots of uh, he's really industrialized the whole enclosure making process but doing it very custom and he said he's got a turnaround time of like two or three days on boxes now uh, from the time they come in on order uh, so yeah it's it's pretty impressive it makes us all look a little bit better and more professional when when that happens uh we went from where did we go from college station i'm trying to remember now waco, waco. we went to waco texas and uh I actually went to see the uh, Waco Siege area of the Branch Davidians while uh, Dan got to sleep in a little bit. I mean, it was that was his happy time. I left. Hey, and I've done all the driving, okay? So give me a break here. I don't get to vegetate over on the passenger side, but at least it images well over here as opposed to over there. So, Well, you know, what do they say about, what do they say about passengers? They can eat shit and die. Right. So this is a not a family show, so... Sorry, guys. Anyway. I was raised on Larry Frederick. Come on, man. <laughs> it's like being raised on a famous comedian, right? Yeah. yeah. Richard Pryor is my uncle. <laughs> so Waco was cool. We saw the guys at Crow Concepts and uh, hung out there for a while. That was fun. We hung out with them at Knowledge Fest and that before. And they're... Uh, pet Daisy the dog. I think Daisy the dog pet you more than you pet her. She definitely got a lot of fur on me and uh, chewed a bone, a rubber bone, a lot. Good dog. Good dog. Good dog. So we went from Waco, I guess, to Dallas area, made a few stops there, saw some old stomping grounds of Dan's. He used to be there. There used to be a shop in Dallas area that I used to come to. What was that called? Uh... Oh, you're talking about mine? Yeah. The one that, oh, uh, that was Soundscape. Yeah. You're going to bring up old shit? Come on, man. Oh, that was, I mean, that was the only reason I came to Texas was to see you guys in that shop. I mean, that was my favorite. That was like my favorite shop in the world. Well, yeah. Mine too. Yeah. I understand. <laughs> I can see why you're partial to it. Yeah. So anyway, we uh, visited some other stores that were around that store. Surpri uh, surprisingly, I, I realized, and maybe this is kind of a, a, you know, I feel a little guilty because there's a lot of local shops that I never went to. I never went and saw a lot of the shops that I was, that were in my area. Uh, I don't know if it, I felt weird as being a competitor going in and 
and looking or whatever, or if I was just so self-absorbed that I didn't. But it was kind of cool to go in and see what uh, some of these shops that I'd heard of for years, you know, while operating in Dallas and uh, actually walking in and seeing people and talking to them. And the cool part is, is like everywhere. So we've been going on this road trip essentially because, I mean, as those who know me understand, I work for hybrid audio technologies as my jobby job, day job. And so Dan and I, well, I kind of came up with this idea as an excuse to hang out with Dan for a week of coming down to visit uh, dealers because I think it's been five or six years since I myself have been down here to kind of see what's going on on the ground floor with the dealers. And there's a lot of, I mean, Texas is a big place and there's a lot of shops that I haven't got to visit that I wanted to visit. So those who you know follow on Facebook at all have just seen us going to Waffle House for the past week. And House. And also going to to see some dealers. Um, Dan likes his uh, his uh, hash browns extra scattered. Scattered very very well. Yeah, they better be. I mean, like crunchy, crunchy hash browns, and like all the way through. Not not that not that soft mushy yeah. potato center, right? You, ha- you have to literally drop three hash browns, crisp those bad boys up, and then stack them on top of each other with some cheese and some some mushrooms. And I'm in. What about a pound of salt? <laughs> and literally about a pound. Um, but anyway, so we've been we've been doing that, and it's been it's been cool because I think everywhere we've gone, it's like you know if somebody's being called up from the back or something, and be like, "Hey, you got a customer here," and then they see us, and then they see Dan, and they're like, "Oh my gosh!" It's like this <laughs> this this you know celebrity dude walked in the door, and they all love it. Um, so it's, it's been fun and, you know, it's been cool to see the guys like around Dallas, even that where Dan hasn't got to go in their shops and maybe they haven't always, you know, come to soundscape or whatever when you were there. I think think they're just relieved. I don't have like a, a bomb jacket on or something. (laughs) Well, I mean, with the beard, the beard might have a bomb jacket in it. We just don't know it. Is that why you have the fancy last name that I can't pronounce? Ungaro. That's, that, that was nice. Yeah, I thought so. I can say my name. Woo. <laughs> I can't. So there's that. So anyway, um, Dan and I and Tom Miller actually recorded a podcast together. Um, much to some other people's chagrin because apparently I scheduled our meeting time for about the exact same time that we were supposed to be doing teardown of our display and also at the same time that we were doing a technical training during Knowledge Fest. So about the time that I took off, I left everybody behind to put up the booth and then do the technical training by themselves. And I haven't really got that let down since. But um, so sorry, guys. It was good intentions, bad execution on my part. I, on the other hand, feel no guilt. Why would you? I, exactly. Right. So... <laughs> Because we, we, we were at your establishment sitting in Soundscape with... Now, uh, I do feel bad. Uh, okay. I kind of feel bad that your microphone was the only one that didn't work. <laughs> I, we had a technical difficulty, and that was, uh, you know, fortuitous because we didn't want to hear Cliff talk anyway. It was just me and Tom. Right. Well, wah, wah, wah. which would be fine, but it's kind of odd... Yeah. 
when you don't have the questioner included and you just hear answers to a question that has no context whatsoever. Dude, just dub yourself in. What are you, lazy? I don't have time to do this. I actually tried that a little bit and it came off completely horrible and I haven't figured out a way to make it work yet. So we're just going to redo this and Tom, you need to... I. We could Skype him in, or call. We could call him on speakerphone. <laughs> no, no, I think that'd be worse. Probably, I think probably. we might just have to have a direct. I, I still firmly believe that there's some kind of processing, or like, because we had two microphones that actually did work, mine and Tom's. Imagine that. And and they picked and we picked up background that had Cliff in there, so I'm I. I, I, I just, my brain can't wrap around it, but I'm sure there's a way that we can like use some cancellation and get his, get your voice in there somewhere. I'd, I'd be like the out of phase track. Yeah. It'd be like in phase, like out of phase. phase. Right. Phase. We're not going to get like K40 yeah, copyright do. rules, are we? No. Okay. I, my, my K40 just went off. See, there's promo. Right. Yay. Hey, guys. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder. I now don't have a ticket. Great. And we're doing we're doing this during uh, coronavirus time, so I'm fairly sure that we need like some kind of Purell's hand sanitizer sponsorship as well. So shout out if anybody you know can hook us up with that. If you hear a little <laughs> sound, that's the that's not farting. That's actually you know that's me putting on another pound of hand sanitizer. Yeah. Because you know you can drink any virus as long as it's a Corona. I don't know. You can have any right. have any virus as long as it's Corona. I don't know. Corona's looking for Lyme disease. It's just we'll the just in thing right now. That's all. Exactly. I don't know why. This is really going to play badly if this thing like goes like crazy and everybody dies. And everybody dies. They'll be like, "Look at those assholes joking about viruses." If everybody dies because of it, I don't think they'll be worried about listening to our podcast. Dude, I I can tell you, there's probably me like a thousand people who will be with headphones on on their deathbed coughing and I don't know what's even involved in coronavirus but they're listening to this podcast our voices because you cannot miss it that's all I'm saying they will mostly be in the comments section telling us what jerks we are yeah right about here is where it's going <laughs> to pop in <laughs> that SoundCloud and... well we'll give you guys a moment to go ahead and just type furiously away we will wait until you're done <laughs> tick 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 so uh, all that to say hey we're here and so, Dan, for those who don't, you know, feverishly follow you on every social media outlet like I do. That scary. That's a scary thing that you just said. For those who are not internet stalkers like I am, um, there's this YouTube channel, and you did this thing called American Soundscape that was pretty cool that you're still working on, right? We have a total of three episodes and a pilot out. And so my production schedule obviously is incredibly slow because those came out Sounds like a year and a half ago. Yeah, like forever ago. I don't even I don't want to think about how long now, but uh, I've got a lot of stuff in the can. So, you know, now that I'm if I'm if I surface enough, maybe we can get some of it out. So, I mean, do you have electricity where you live? There's they have what they do is they hire armadillos to walk on hamster wheels. And that's how we use electricity out in the sticks. Perfect. So, Dan, how did you get started in car audio? I got started in car audio in 2000, and uh, I had inadvertently moved back to Dallas from Colorado uh, 
to get the band back together because that was the kind of thing you do when you're 19. And uh, I just needed a job and I was applying everywhere. And at Circuit City, the only two jobs they had that were not uh, commission-based were warehouse and car audio installation. And I'd already done warehouse before. So I chose car audio install, no idea what I was doing whatsoever. Uh, but they hired me and I uh, got trained and Steve Vining uh, was my my install manager and he uh, he basically made me feel like crap every day because I didn't know what I was doing until I did and then he became one of my best friends. Very cool. So when did you, I mean, with your progress, you started at Circuit City first or? Yeah. Okay. So I started at Circuit City. I was there for about four and a half years, just six months shy of being vested, which was an idiot move, but um, uh, focused a lot on the basics. I mean, like we we were the only place in, in or the only Circuit City that was like very consistently soldering all our connections because Steve really wouldn't have it any other way. And uh, so, I, you know, we kind of became the, the hub for fixing alarm installs and, you know, uh, we, we kind of did amp racks. Uh, that's where I learned to do my amps, my amp rack, uh, the amp forward type method as far as installation. And uh, we weren't supposed to be doing any fab or anything, but Steve insisted that we uh, could cut some wood with a jigsaw and, you know, carpet some stuff. And so that kind of got me a little bit into the idea of doing some fab. And then uh, when I felt like my time at Circuit City had run out, I got a job at Tweeter, uh, mainly just to get into fabrication. And basically, I just had a, a wood shop that I could do whatever I wanted. And I just self, self-discovered uh, and how to do that stuff. And YouTube wasn't exactly a prominent <laughs> item back then. No, there was no such thing as the YouTube kids. <laughs> uh, this is in, uh, what, 2000? Well, no, there was YouTube, but it wasn't like what it prominent. is now. Yeah. I mean, to have a digital camera and do all that stuff was a big pain in the butt, and nobody was doing that. But uh, the Alpine builds were really big then, and that's where uh, they were. On their website, they used to have uh, build pics of all of their, of of the crazy builds they were doing, like the Civic and all that kind of stuff. And so you could look at the pictures and kind of figure out what they were doing. There wasn't a whole lot of explanation. But, I mean, you could read some articles and stuff like that. But for the most part, that's how I figured out how to get started with fabrication was looking at their pictures and then kind of mimicking that and trying to find, you know, the the path to, you know, pretty stuff. Right. And if I – and, again, Tom Miller, uh, shout out to you. We need to do an interview with you now, I guess, separately. But – Um, One of the biggest takeaways that I really got from talking with you guys during Knowledge Fest was that unlike what the rest of us think happened, you weren't actually born and you didn't come out of the womb with all this knowledge and and ability to fab an amazing vehicle. Hey, Oscar Mayer Wienermobile just went by. Whoa. Yeah. I didn't even see that. So, and, I, and I have a pretty good radar for Wiener. So, right. <laughs> wouldn't you know? So that's why we're staying in the hourly motel tonight. Yeah. So, <laughs> so like I said, you didn't come out of your mother's womb with the ability to. No, I don't, so no, I was hatched out of an egg fully grown. I was just completely worthless. Okay. 
just like a newborn, I had to, you know, pick it up fast. I got you. So, well, how long did the diaper phase last then for you? Oh, no, I just left a trail. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> like a slug to slime? Yeah, it was, a, it was like, oh, Dan's been here. This is a constant stream of, you know, stuff. So you did know how to fabricate out of your, out, out no, of your egg? No, no. I had to start from the beginning. I only had about, you know, six months to become an adult. And okay. no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so when did, when do you become an adult? When does that happen? Okay, so before, before I got into car audio, I had no, like, my, sorry, Dad. My dad was not a handy guy. I mean, he, uh, he was like in electronics and stuff like that. But, you know, fi- working on cars or fixing stuff, I mean, that... It wasn't like I figured it was not in my DNA to be like a crafty person, you know, creative, but not crafty. I was like into music and stuff like that. But when I got into car audio, specifically when I started doing fabrication, then I started to realize I had an aptitude for, you know, MacGyvering things together and like learning, you know, having doing craftsmanship type stuff and, you know, just keep trying to get better. And so that's that's where I trail off. (laughs) Okay, so. You're starting more fabrication stuff. I mean, it sounds like you did some fabrication stuff against other people's will at Circuit City, and then you started doing more fabrication when you got to Tweeter. Well, well, so it wasn't. It just wasn't like a thing that we were ever expected or supported to do. When I went to Tweeter, I was there was a guy, there was the, the install manager, which is like you know, I mean, the install manager was like one guy, and he was also the one installer. So I mean, there's just the one other dude there. But he did fabrication, and I was told, like, this guy's going to train you. He's going to teach you all this stuff. And when I got in there, uh, he really didn't want me to do any of the fab because he was doing the fab, and it was a commission environment. And so I didn't get to do any for a while, and I, I really, really wanted to get my hands dirty in doing that stuff. So I started grabbing, like, little pieces of, of scrap MDF, and I made uh, – I made the skeleton of a of a dragon. I, I like dragons, <laughs> and so. Like uh, well, no, it, it wasn't even anything that would go in a car. Really, it was just like a, a dragon's head, you know. And uh, and then I stretched fleece over it, and then fiberglassed it, and then started like body working it and making basically this dragon head. And I even filed like uh, ground down uh, pieces of wood to to make teeth and glued them in there. And my regional manager, Jason Heim, came in. He goes, what the hell are you doing? And I said, well, I'm, I'm practicing <laughs> making stuff. And he goes, why don't you practice, like, you know, making boxes and, and doing stuff in cars? And I was like, well, you know, because homeboy over here doesn't want me to. And uh, he was like, he, then he turned around and he said, you, you can do w- whatever you want here. Just go ahead and do it. Don't let him stop you. And so... And uh, yeah, don't let other people's egos uh, stop you from your own personal growth. Word to uh, anybody out there listening. So, what was it that made you want to do the fabrication side of things? Because I think that I mean, like, I I can barely rub two sticks together. But at the same time, you know, in talking to you and Tom, it sounded like well, you know, neither did we when we started. Um, we just wanted to do it and did it or got there. I mean, obviously there was, I'm sure time, but what, what was it that drew you to doing more than just what you were asked to do in your job? 
I don't know what it is for other people, but for me, and I just, I guess I just always thought everybody thinks the same. And I don't, I don't think I've changed that until like more recently that like, oh, people think differently. Uh, but I just, yeah, odd how that is. Um, but I've always had the, the, the interest in having something in my head, like imagining something and then bringing it, bringing it into the world, whether it's music, writing, uh, and then, you know, then it turned out, I was like, oh, wait, like I can, I've, I've seen how to cut a piece of wood and how to glue it together and, you know, all this stuff and then, you know, upholster it. And now I can imagine this thing in my head and then make it in reality out of raw materials. And to me, that's, it's kind of a, a birthing of creativity. And it's just another expression. I, I always saw it as like, I couldn't be a, mu- I didn't believe that I could be a musician professionally. Uh, and this was a way for me to be very close to music and to be able to put a lot of creativity into my daily life uh, in a way that made me some money. So you're making dragons at Twitter. I, yeah. I, I made that one dragon head. One, one dragon head. One dragon head. And then they asked you to kind of start getting into more fabrication at that point? I mean, you started doing that regularly. Did you, like, take the other guy off? Did well, What happened? <laughs> well, the other guy got fired. Uh, so <laughs> then I was back there by myself just kind of tinkering and doing stuff. And so I was able to uh, – oh, we're going to make a turn here. Am I going to make a turn? I don't know. In 1.7 miles. Okay. Oh, sorry. yeah, I'm not reading that. Sorry. Podcasting and uh, driving at the same time. Um uh, so when he got let go, I was kind of like by myself and we're, I mean, we're a custom shop, you know, and with a full wood shop, which was better equipped than most anywhere as far as like a chain like that goes, at least at the time anyway. And so I was very spoiled. Uh, but I got to, uh, you know, just kind of flex my muscles and just try things that I had never done before. And, you know, uh, Yeah. A lot of trial and error. So how long were you at Twitter at that point then after that? I mean, how long were you doing that and what drove you to want to change or what drove you to change? Um, well, I just instantly gravitated towards like, or I, I liked the, the, the reward of seeing something finished that I made and it was a lot more fun than just doing remote starts <laughs> and, you know, the basic or you know, the stuff that I had been doing for, you know, five years at that point. And uh, when we got another installer in there, he was all wiring and everything. So it kind of left me to just do the fabrication. And I got to go deep and I pretty much focused mostly on that for several years after that. Uh, Even when I went to Car Toys after, I think it was at Twitter for like three years. And then I went to Car Toys and a lot of people just didn't like to do fabrication because it took too long and it didn't pay enough and, you know, you're commissioned and all that kind of stuff. So I just kind of took took on that mantle and, you know, kept doing a bunch of crazy fabrication stuff at, at Car Toys at all three locations that I worked at. So, And these were all locations where? Where were you located at the time? Uh, they're all in the da- Dallas Metroplex. It was uh, I started off in Louisville, then I went to Frisco, and then ended up in Plano after that. Uh, before I finally left to go on my own, and by that point, I'd been in the industry about nine and a half years. So, which is quite a long time, really. I mean, that's like 
a whole career for some people. So, I mean, I mean, nine and a half years up to the point where you decide to go off on your own, you must have loved what you do. Well, you know, I had no other skills, and I'm, I really suck at everything else. So I figured, you know, now car audio is one of those things where, like, I'm, when I was at, even when I was at Circuit City, I, you know, before I got into fabrication, I was like, well, I've kind of learned everything I have to learn out of this, and you know, this is before a lot of the crazy stuff that started happening with, you know, cars getting more difficult and the, uh, you know, processors and all that kind of stuff. So uh, I had actually gotten like kind of. I went very part-time at, at Circuit City and then got a job at Capital One Auto Finance doing collections. Ooh. And uh, I it literally made me ill. Like, I got stomach ulcers within the first two months of working there from, I to be honest, I don't know what it was, but I was just sitting in a cubicle for hours on end. And it like, but then on the weekends when I worked at, at Circuit City, I t- felt totally fine. And so I was like, well, obviously I am not meant to be a, a, a caged animal anymore. So I let myself run around in the wild and I went back to full time and, you know, uh, I don't know. Entrepreneurship was really the only thing that, that drew me out of, you know, out of doing what I was doing. So, And professional rock star wasn't exactly a option at that point, right? Is that it? Well, in, in 2005 or 2006, something like that, that's when the band broke up, you know. So, and I, I remember telling a coworker when I was at, uh, at Twitter, I was like, now nah, I'm just a car audio dude, you know. And I guess at the time, I still kind of had it like, this is what I do until I become a rock star. And then when the, the music fell away, I was like, well, now I'm just a car audio guy. And then I doubled down into it. And I really, you know, uh, it, it was a job for a while. I admit it was a job for a while and it wasn't, you know, when I was at car toys, it wasn't necessarily like the most, like a hundred percent, the thing that I wanted to do, but I did find there were projects that I enjoyed doing and, but it, it became, you know, it was a hustle, you know, and there was just a point where I felt like I could focus more on what I wanted to do and build the kinds of things I wanted to build if I was doing it on my own. Uh, and that's, that's pretty much where I left, uh, in 2009, uh, went off and got a little spot in the back of a warehouse and that was Ungaro custom designs at that point. So what pushed, I mean, that's a fairly significant step that most people don't take. You know, most people stay working for somebody else or in a secure, secure spot. You're not you're in Dallas, you're not lacking for uh, car audio stores around you in Texas uh, with uh, skilled people that you could work with. Um, What, I guess, what pushed you into taking that step of risk and reward to start your own thing? Well, uh, well, looking back, uh, I realized what an idiot I was uh, for thinking this, but I looked at, I was like, I was working for car toys and I knew that if I, you know, and I looked at other places to go work and I, I realized that in a retail environment, I was going to be, you know, I would get, you know, Christmas day and Thanksgiving day off and that was about it. And I was engaged to be married and I was like, if we're going to have kids, I would like to be there, uh, be available to go do whatever, you know, and I didn't think that I was going to be able to do that if I... I had no interest in management, so 
I was going to constantly just be an installer who was working that schedule and doing that hustle every day. And I thought <laughs> if I went off on my own, I could dictate my own schedule. And in a lot of ways that was true, but you know, you keep, uh, I was using my future as a family, as a motivation to keep filling the sails to push that boat forward. And, uh, it just kept going on and on from there. And I'd always wanted to own my own business. I never, I'd, I had started a, a, a recording studio years before when I was a tweeter. And I realized that you really shouldn't start businesses and businesses you don't know anything about. I mean, no matter how much you like it. And I was like, well, it makes sense for me to do car audio because I know car audio pretty decently. And I'd been in it for, you know, about 10 years at that point. So, you know, it made sense. And that's why I did that. So immediately in the first year, you took off and you were a rock star in car audio and everybody was following you on YouTube, right? Is that how that worked? No, 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 not even what I don't even no, oh. I I had a MySpace page. Uh, I didn't. <laughs> uh, no, <laughs> that's the only answer I have for that. Um, no, I. So, so we, how did it work? Well, I started off. Uh, well, initially, I thought I would be a custom, a custom shop for, or like a custom guy for other shops. I didn't want to do retail. I didn't want to talk to customers uh, so much. I was thinking that the, the I could pick like three or four shops around the area that didn't offer custom work. And basically my thought at the time was that I would be a hired gun to do custom work and I would have my own, you know, uh, fabrication facility uh, in which that they wouldn't have the overhead of dealing with, but they could sell the work, I could do it, and they could, you know, make their profit off of it or whatever. Um, but um, either I was a horrible salesperson, which is very, very likely, uh, or just nobody wanted that. Um, so either way, that didn't work. And uh, so I, I kind of ended up going mobile for a little bit until decided to uh, open up a retail spot, and then I got my first business partner. So Okay, so you, uh, what was your, was your focus just kind of what you'd always – lived with in retail as far as just saying, okay, well, I'm going to do remote starts and I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. I mean, did you already have relationships set up with, with vendors, with uh, brands that you were going to work with, with who your target audience was, or did you just kind of fall into it at that point? I mean, what was your focus starting out? Uh, I had none. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we, we basically, went in there we you know we signed up with distributors and and went to uh there was some really good there, there back then it was before knowledge fest was in dallas and we did the uh there was a like a bunch of distributors would get together and have at a hotel and have like a little their own kind of little knowledge fest or something and um that's where we met uh we were going through there and there was at the the Harmon table uh or the Harmon booth uh matt kale was there and he was the rep for them at the time and you know I had the idea that I wanted to be really high-end because of the tweeter experience and how much I liked working with high-end equipment and, you know, I, I'm a, I was a budding audiophile, I guess. And, 
you know, when he was like, hey, you know, how about this JBL stuff? And I was like, eh, you know, I did that at Circuit City and I was, wasn't crazy about it. And he was like, you kind of like did the whole like, you know, open up the jacket and say, well, you, you want some Electromedia? <laughs> you know, and I was like, ooh, Audison, you know, and I'd never heard of Hertz at the time and he had to sell me on that. But he needed a demo car done. And that was like one of the first things we did was we built this demo car and, you know, I did all the, I built the whole trunk out and I learned a whole lot doing that car and uh, really realized how little I actually knew about car audio. Um, and that's where Larry Frederick uh, called me and, and told me what an idiot I was and um, told me that I had to rethink how I do things. And I'm really glad that he did because uh, it kind of changed the trajectory of what I do. Um, and also uh, gave me the confidence to uh, to pursue higher end stuff and that there was another level to go to other than just putting ex expensive equipment in a car. So, and At that point, you started thinking more of how you were doing it versus just, oh, this fits, drop it in, this is what the page says, you know, or spec book says, or whatever. It seems like you started thinking more about how the application works and how you're using it, applying it, and getting a more re repeatable process. Is that correct? Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I didn't think that I had anything to learn. I mean, for one, so Larry kicked my butt on, on, uh, enclosure design and, uh, the fact that, or just how to tune a processor at all. Um, uh, which was, we were just dealing with a bit one at the time. Um, but then I had a client come in. This is still when we were first, I mean, but all this happened, like when we were first setting up the shop, uh, we had a client come in that had a set of, of speakers that he got online uh, because there was no one around uh, that would sell them or that did sell them. And uh, it turned out to be a set of hybrid audio Claris uh, components. And, uh, you know, we put them in and, and I was really impressed with the sound. And this isn't a pitch for hybrid, okay? I'm just saying that uh, this, this is, I was so impressed with the sound that we called and said, hey, we need to carry these speakers. And this is the time when Scott Buwalda was basically working by himself. And, you know, so he answered the phone. And from talking to him and understanding, for one, it was really cool to talk to somebody who was someone who had actually designed a speaker. And as somebody who had worked at, at you know, corporate places before, I'd, I mean, you don't have that opportunity. It's just something that you're just not that close to a manufacturer with. And so my curiosity kicked in with that, and he explained, you know, the the physical aspects of what are what's happening and the, the the physics of that, and how mounting a speaker into a door and baffling it properly and sounding the door properly, and you know, it's all the stuff that, from a competition standpoint, you would learn that I had none of because I didn't do any kind of competition. I was able to get that directly from him uh, and apply it right away. And I saw the benefits of doing things this way and, you know, running speakers active. And I mean, really between Electromedia and Hybrid Audio, those two companies, which stayed with me for pretty much the entirety of, of my shop, um, changed the way that I looked at car audio and just, I mean, it just blew my mind. And then I, I kind of, that was really where I not only had the ability to do fabrication the way that I wanted to in my own facility, but I had a really, an intensely renewed interest in the other sides of it, the electrical sides of it, the, the, you know, the speakers, the amps and processors and all that, just because I realized it was a whole other world 
to, uh, to, to learn and to expand on. And I, even to this day, I haven't stopped learning that stuff. So, you know, it's like an endless pursuit on both the fabrication and the installation side. I, and I think you were the, you've, you've always been one of the kind of the few and far in between guys that really constantly have pushed yourself on the fabrication side, but also pushed yourself on the tuning side. And, you know, you've made repeatedly made stuff that not only looks good, but sounds good. Oh, thanks, man. Well, I'm just saying it's, it's well, not common, you know. Well, it's a product of just thinking you suck all the time. <laughs> like, I have never, I mean... They say that you never. What was what, what it we were talking about the other day? A book is never finished. You just abandon it. Okay. Like that's the. I mean, it may be the masterpiece that you know people take it as or whatever. But you, there's just a point where you decide to stop. You got to stop working on it, and uh, before it goes out. But the thing is, is like as much as each project might be done. It, the pursuit of like, well, I could have done better with that part of it. So then the next one you try to do that on, whether it's like tuning it better or, you know, uh, deadening that door better or, you know, uh, just everything, every, everything. As long as you never believe that you're perfect, then you're always going to pursue getting better. And that's kind of, you know, I've just accepted. I'll never be perfect. And I hear you. Never be happy. I'll never, ever be happy, ever again. I think you can be happy no. without being perfect. No, Clifton, I already can, I can feel it. I'm 40 years old, and happiness has never been in my life. What about me? You, you amuse me. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'm like a monkey in the passenger seat. You, you, read, happy, you read happiness on me. It's, that's all that is. <laughs> it's just a accidental photons bouncing around in my whatever dimension I'm in at the time. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I see what you're talking about, yeah. <laughs> Making fun of me now. No, I'm not. <laughs> so, okay, so at this point, what are you using, what are you working out of for a shop? Is this like... Like currently? No, I meant like at this point in your oh. career when you first are getting hooked up with electromedia and hybrid right. and whatever else. I mean, are you in a, a full-blown retail establishment? Or are you, where are you... What are you working out of? Uh, th so that first spot was, uh, it was an industrial spot, you know, where you have kind of a, you know, maybe like a 500 square foot, uh, like office space that's split up into like what it, for us, it was like a little, little tiny showroom, a bathroom, and then a little office. And that was it. Um, and that was the only spot that was like had air conditioning or heat. Um, and then a pretty decent sized warehouse area, but the where I, I, I kind of set the the wood shop around the corner uh, from where the cars were, and it wasn't ideal. Cars got dusty. It was dark in there. Uh, there were that was uh, in the it was, that was in 2010 when we opened that spot, and the um, we had a, a, a cold, cold, cold winter that winter, and it was so bad that that I just for one I had to go in there if I moved fast enough and kept going, going, going. Then I was warm enough to where I didn't freeze, but then the fiberglass wouldn't set because it was just too cold for the reaction to kick, and um, that was a that was a big pain in the ass, and uh, it really cut down on productivity. And then during the summer, you know, this is Texas, so and we only had one door, so we couldn't get wind blowing through, and so you know you're sweating over every piece of work that you're working on, and you know you're trying to do high end stuff and high end cars, and it's just really 
rough when you're, you know, beating sweat, dropping down onto the seats and uh, things had to change. So after two years, that's, that's when we moved to the Plano location, which was a little bit more, I think people were more familiar with that one. So the, the Plano location that you moved in after two years of starting out was the one that is probably in most of the pictures and videos and everything else of, of, uh, from knowledge fest visits and, and everything else with the big glass rotunda, um, desk in the middle and, and everything else, which was, and that shop was nothing but spit and, and elbow grease. That's like that whole thing. I mean, we, we never had a bunch of money. We never had big investors. We never had any of that stuff. And like the, the the de- or the the sales desk that we had, which was nice and pretty, uh, was something that we got from a secondhand store, uh, and we we talked them down on on the price and everything because, you know, it was going to be a pain to move and we didn't have any money. But, you know, everything else I built my own displays because I couldn't afford the Avid Work stuff, and uh, I mean we painted we our friends came and helped paint walls uh, when we first moved in. Uh, I had to hang the doors myself uh, because the contractor disappeared on me. Um, nothing's easy. That's just everything sucks. Every, yeah, <laughs> when you're the owner, everything is just a pain in the butt. So if you're, if your owner, you know, if the owner of the shop you work at is uh, uh, stressed out and you know snaps at you, it's probably because his life sucks. Well, good good sales pitch. Hey, I call. I, hey, you caught me at a weird point in my life, man. <laughs> so, uh, you were at that the Plano location for five. quite some five, five, five years. Okay. Yeah, and I mean that was really. I mean, uh, like I say, you were kind of the for those who followed sports for six months like I did, you were kind of like the Lou Pinella of, of coaches bringing in these guys that, you know, relatively few people would know about and now are all like superstars in the karate world between you got Dave Cruz and Pierce and I don't even know who else, but... Greenwood's kind of famous. Greenwood's real famous. Infamous. He's infamous, infamous. right? I think, yeah. we'll go for, well, I think we'll go with infamous, yes. <laughs> And I mean, Greenwood's now working for Alpine. Pierce is up at Music Car. Um, David Cruz is at uh, boy, my Avant Guard, yeah, um, in Florida. But the thing, well, and 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 I had other people go through there as well who were, you know, some of them were very good, and a couple that weren't, you know. And the thing is, is that crew, the you know, the where we were at our pinnacle, you know, was the the last the last of that, you know. I, I worked up to that crew. It wasn't like it just instantly happened. And, you know, the lessons that I learned with previous employees uh, really informed how I went forward with, with them. And, uh, you know, like involving Greenwood in this in the, uh, the interview process uh, because I knew that they were going to have to deal with him. <laughs> so it was important that everybody gets to know each other, right? And uh, I need, also needed a second opinion because by that point when I was really hiring a bunch of people, um, was when I didn't have any business partners. So it was, you know, it was important that everybody get along and everybody felt like a team. And I really tried to not only make everybody feel like I was there to support them and that we were all in this together, but that I was going to provide all the, the tools and resources and everything that I possibly could to help them do their best 
so that I could expect it. You know, when I tell when I sold my sold my clients on us being the best, then I had to know that the people in the back, you know, that I was responsible for and I was responsible for their work, that that was going to happen. And they didn't let me down. I mean, they I had phenomenal people and they raised the bar constantly on their own. Uh, and I just kind of like said, well, okay, yeah, let's do that all the time now forever. So, so at that point you, what year was it? You guys moved up to earning the retailer of the year award for, with, uh, mobile electronics. That was 2016. And at that point you became a millionaire and everything got easy. Yeah. And then I, you know, I blew it all on Coke and hookers. Um, and you know, that's the end of the podcast. And yeah, and uh, now I live in a van down by the river, and that's what it is. I mean, who no, who, who wouldn't want to live in a van by the river? <laughs> well, right now that sounds pretty good. <laughs> I'm, I'm by the river now. I look, unfortunately, I don't have a van. <laughs> maybe maybe we can get you a van. Anyway, so what? Uh, so seriously, like, what was your feelings with the? I mean, there's not many people who get Retailer of the Year. That's why it's that award, right? I mean, what what do you feel led up to that point? And, and how did you feel then after that point? Well, uh, we hadn't really, we hadn't competed at all uh, before that um, as a shop because I felt like we still had so far to go. And uh, I mean, even at the, even at that time, I thought we did too. But, um, you know, I, I felt like I had an amazing crew and we were already really transparent about the kind of work we were doing. And, you know, we got good response from everybody in the industry. So we thought this would be a good time to like put our, our hat in the ring at least to, uh, you know, lay up for next year or something like that. I mean, that's really what we, I mean, we were up against Musicar and Kingpin and JML and like all these amazing shops that, you know, I'd looked up to for years. And, uh, you know, I, as much as we were putting in all the effort and all the work and we, you know, we are always doing our best, you know, none of us thought that we would win. I mean, that was a, that was an enormous shock. And I, I think when I gave my speech up there that that was apparent. Um, but I feel like, you know, just to be included in with the, the, the group of people that, that we were was an honor in itself. So, Absolutely. So around that, I mean, when I think we first met in 2012, and I mean, something that you were always really good at that I appreciated from my standpoint was that you were good at photography, you were consistent in getting you know, your, your work out there with sharing it, um, and everything like that. And I think that's, I would, I would imagine that, you know, for anybody listening to this sometimes has the same kind of, uh, trepidation when it comes to sharing their work or having somebody listen to their car or anything like that. I mean, you did it so consistently, Again, as far as here's the picture of the build, here's, you know, the equipment that was installed, here's what we're doing now. Um, I mean, was there a, was there a, and you're always good at it, I think, for as long as I've known you. So, I mean, was there a stumbling block of getting to that point for you, or were you just always excited to share your work? Well, uh, for one, I was shamed into it. Uh, I used to only post 
Oh, I mean, it was still in the early. I mean, I, I remember signing. Like, I joined Facebook for Soundscape. Like, I, I didn't have a personal uh, Facebook page at the time, and I really rarely ever posted to it. Uh, it was really just mostly most of my social media was for Soundscape. So. Uh, but as far as like taking pictures and videos and stuff like that, I'd always, I mean, even ever since I was a little kid, I had a, a video camera or something like that in my hand because, you know, I'm a big fan of movies and all that kind of stuff. So, uh, kind of transferring that and realizing that there was a home for that at the shop was really nice. And, you know, it, it kind of gave me a reason to get better with that stuff as well. And as far as, it was, it was Joey Knapp was the one who, who kind of said, you know, stop being a little punk and just take a picture. Stop for two seconds and take a picture of what you're doing. And at that point, it was just pictures, really. And, uh, you know, post them up, and we were putting them on uh, 12 Volt Insider. Yeah, 12 Volt Insider was the thing that really made me feel like there was a community to be a part of and, you know, where I could get some kind of validation from peers because I didn't, I didn't know any fabricators or you know people who were doing what I was doing in my area so it was that was the one way that I was able to you know uh, get someone to tell me I was on the right path and to see their work and, and try to emulate that so it was kind of a you know just keeping up with the Joneses a lot I think right so I seem to remember having a conversation with you maybe around 2000 15-ish and you had this crazy idea to start incorporating a bunch of video into your builds and then a year or two later that kind of grew up and blew up into a whole another project uh, that we now call American Soundscape so what got you excited about that project which has really not much to do with you yourself doing fabrication well uh in, well, in 2010, when we first started the shop uh, on YouTube, we had found Soundman. And, uh, you know, Doug Bernards and his crew, that's back when he had a shop and he had a whole bunch of people working there. And uh, me and my first business partner, we, we used to sit down and, like, catch that every week and watch it. And it was, it was fun to watch the ins and outs of another shop, um, even though it was a little different than our shop. It was, you know, I kept thinking, like, well... We could do that, right? We we could like, you know, film ourselves doing it. But I was like, who's gonna? Who wants to see what me and this guy are doing? I mean, like, we're boring, you know. Um, so it took a long time before I felt like there was a legitimate reason to try to make any kind of, I don't know, program or whatever. And it really just, I got used to making like little, little like feature things, you know, just like little videos about specific projects and releasing those and trying to keep the production quality as high as I could because uh, that's just personally what I care for um, and then there, there was a point where I thought you know if I wanted to have a show like an actual show something that would be consistent I didn't think that my little shop had enough material to uh, uh, to keep people interested or to pump out that much uh, content so I always, from the very beginning, thought it would be cool to go to other shops and show what they're doing, and because I already looked up to all these, you know, amazing installers and fabricators. So, you know, why not show what they're doing? And you know, I didn't really have any ego about it at that point. So, uh, the plan was always to do it this way. And now that I don't have a shop, 
uh, just still fits. So, I mean, I don't, I, it's, it's kind of cool. Have video camera will travel. That's right. So you had the Plano store. Um, you were there for five years, right? Yeah. And so what made you want to take the next step from that store? Oh, a whole bunch of things. <laughs> uh, let me count the ways. Well, for one, uh, the the landlord kind of sucked, um, which I'm not sure that any don't. Um, but it was an expensive spot. Uh, it was right on the freeway, and we were getting a lot more, like, walk-in, uh, you know, volume-based type retail, uh, people walking in. And our with the kind of work we were doing, I'm trying to say this without sounding egotistical, I think, but the kind of work we were doing, we kept charging more and more for, uh, because it took longer and longer, not because our hourly, hourly rate had to get astronomical. We were just on in line with everybody else, but we were doing more things because we just kept adding things to our process and we didn't want to compromise on that, but we had to charge for it. So there was a point where we couldn't sell entry level equipment because our installation, we weren't going to compromise on and, you know, things had to be in balance to justify the purchase. So being within a stone's throw uh, of a car toys and, uh, you know, being right on the freeway, we were getting a lot of people coming in who we would, you know, we gave everybody all the time they needed to decide if they want to do business with us or not. But when we got to the price point at the end, it was way more than they were thinking, you know, even walking in thinking like this is more expensive here than, than other places. But... I felt like we needed to change kind of the way that we presented ourselves and I didn't want you to walk. There's a lot of aspects to it. There was, for one, I wanted to, I didn't want you to walk into the showroom. Uh, I felt like we needed to have our sale, our, our projects be a mutual agreement, uh, that we're, we're, we're both, both parties are doing this, you know, we're doing stuff that was experimental in a lot of ways. And we were shooting for a bar that you just can't 100% expect to hit it on the first, like when the customer first comes to pick up the car. Uh, that's why we, we, we worked into the process that you're going to come back for a retune, you know, because, and sometimes multiple, because it's not about making it sound great for us, you know, we know what that is, but making it sound great for the person who's buying it. And so we would le- we would let them come in with a uh, let them leave with a, a reference tune, you know, considering also what they what they said that they liked, but then let them come back and uh, uh, guide us through a tune so that they could have exactly what they like, whether we liked it or not. Um, so in that spirit of partnership, when you walk into the store, I wanted to have like a reception area where we could decide. Are we going to go look at the car? Are we going to look at, you know, look at the installation facility? Are we going to go look at radios and stuff like that? I had so many people come into my first, my, or the Plano store and say, you know, I'm, how much is, the, is an amp? You know, and I'm like, well, it's not really so much about how much the amp costs. It's about the whole project uh, because it's not, an, an amp doesn't make the system happen on its own. Um, but when you have an amplifier sitting there, 15 feet away from them and you refuse to just give them a price on that because it's irrelevant, they kind of start to think you're an asshole. And I just just hated people looking at me like that. So 
you know, walking into a reception area gave me the freedom to choose, to make an assessment and choose like, what are we doing from here? And uh, gave them the understanding that this was a multi-step process. This wasn't a a clerking situation, which is why getting rid of the sales desk was a big deal for me, uh, or the, the sales counter, because for one, I didn't want a counter in between me and my client, and no one writes a ten, fifteen thousand dollar check at a at a counter like that. I mean, you go to buy a car for that much, you know, and sitting down in a, in a at least a cubicle, right, is is the way to do that. Not you know standing at a at a desk, you know, or at a, at a counter, you know. You're not you're not you're not buying a, a hammock or a chair for sixty bucks. You're making a major purchase here. Right. Yeah, we don't have a, a little conveyor belt and a scan thing. I mean, that's this is you're you're asking someone to perceive a high value in what you're doing. Now, this is this is obviously for the business model I had. This isn't for everybody. I totally, totally, totally understand that. Um, this is it was for the kind of business model that I that we were working around, and you know, it was very consultation based, not sales based. And you know, when you scheduled and and that's where we went to a locked door with a scheduled uh, consultation because, for one, we, we didn't have a lot of people, uh, a lot of staff there, and it was more about us having that agreement on what the project was going to be. So having an, uh, having an appointment showed that they were going to respect my time and that I was going to respect theirs. I'm not going to answer the phone. I'm not going to answer the door. They have that time. And so, uh, I don't know, it, it kind of changed the, the, the feeling of what was happening from the jump, just from, you know, realizing that you had to make an appointment to come in. And then when you did come in, that you had my full undivided attention. A lot of times those sales consultations went way past an hour. I mean, there's some people I sat there for five hours, six hours, because I mean, I don't have, I've never had a lot of money. This kind of money to ask somebody to to drop, you know, you got to really make them feel comfortable with it. So, you know, I was invested in that concept at that point or at the sale, the point of the consultation. And then if they went with it, then I was also invested in it in the installation process in that they were going to get the time that it took to do that job the way that we discussed. Absolutely. Also during that time was really kind of when the American soundscape dream started building. You had a full on editing room. And if I recall, you also had a full on band studio room um so there was there was a lot going on in there that was you know lots of fun stuff um i mean what was during that and i know this wasn't that long ago but i mean during that specific time period i mean what was was it all your favorite thing to do i mean was there something that you were really gung-ho about in your mind if you know if one of those things if you could just wave a magic wand and make one of those things take off. I mean, what was your, what was your biggest focus internally? Not necessarily what you had to do as a job or to make, you know, make rent or whatever, but I mean, internally, what did you really want during that time? Well, that's so tough to say. Um, I wasn't so, uh, yeah, (laughs) there were so many things going on at the time. Um, I had a room that was set up for the studio uh, because I'm selfish and I don't know. It was one of those things where it was kind of from a, 
from a customer perspective uh, standpoint, having the studio there was really cool because they could see that I knew the process from creating music to recording it to putting it on a CD or a, or a file to putting it in the car and listening to it in a system that I had designed and built and implemented was kind of like a start, I, a start to finish. It's like going to a you know a chef who says, I'm going to make you a meal, but not only did, am I going to cook this meal for you, but I... I raise cows. I, 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 you know, I raise the wheat to make the flour, to make the bread, to go on the bun that makes the. I mean, like doing the whole process. That kind of gives a gives them a, an understanding that you really love everything to do with this. And I and I do. I did and I do. Um, and plus, you know, was getting the band back together again. You know, midlife crisis kind of thing. And uh, I had a space, and that was you know. That's what it where that, that one room that was when it was one room when the studio was one room. It wasn't until the American Soundscape thing when we decided to just go off and do the the 2018 uh, uh, Western tour uh, where we got to go see some of my favorite shops in the whole world. Uh, that was when I was like, okay, I'm gonna need an edit bay in order to really be able to do this. If this is gonna be, I, I basically converted all of my marketing. Uh, budget and effort into into doing that um, and it it necessitated it created the necessity to have uh, to turn the inventory room which you know I was drawing down the amount of inventory I kept in the shop uh, because we're doing more project based stuff uh, so I had another room available that I could use to do that and uh, that's where the first uh, you know few episodes of American Sounds, or actually all the episodes of American Soundscape that have happened up till now were done. Um, and it worked out really well. So. so throughout your career, you've been involved in a lot of builds, not in builds even outside of ones that you sold or were at Soundscape or whatever. But what has been the work that you've been the most proud of over the past 15 plus years of doing this? Oh man. Uh, honestly, the 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 employees that I've had that have gone on to do bigger and better things. To be, I mean, I the, the development of the employees has been your right. favorite work. Yeah, like I mean, I mean, I I feel like I I, I provided a, a, an environment for them to grow, and the work that they did with me. I just enormously proud of and the the influence that had on other people enormously proud of and the fact that they've gone on to to be even better super enormously proud of and the, uh, excuse me the reputation that we had as a shop I mean I can't I can't feel bad about any of that, you know. I felt like we stuck to our guns and we were very true to what we were doing. And that's, you know, as far as, like, things that I built, I mean, as I said before, I mean, you're never abs actually happy with anything that you do. Uh, but, there, you know, there's some favorite projects and stuff like that that I did that, you know, uh, will always be true to me. But I always like to think my next project is my best one. So it, it sounds to me, I mean, I guess 
typically I would ask the question, what would you do different or what would you change? In this case, I, regardless of eventual outcomes, it sounds like you really wouldn't change much when it comes to how you did business or how, how you how you ran your business and how you presented your business to your customers. You wouldn't change. Yeah, I mean, the operationally and, you know, culture-wise, I'm a thousand percent happy with where I went, where, you know, where we were evolving and where we were going. Um, on the business side of it, as far as the money management and, I, to be honest, from day one, that was never something I wanted to have to deal with. <laughs> That's why I had business partners uh, to begin with was because that was going to be them and I was going to be, you know, the fab guy, the sales guy, the marketing guy, whatever I ended up being. But I definitely did not want to crunch numbers and try to figure out, uh, you know, any of that stuff. That is, it was never fun for me. <laughs> that was never the thing I wanted to do. And, uh, you know, I was able to do it and I did it for a long time uh, on my own. And, you know, uh, when my personal life took a dive, it just, it took like another year for, you know, things to devolve. And uh, I just, the spirit started to die. Um, not with the business, not with my love for what I was doing, but just within me. And, I was too busy to stop and and take a breather or figure out what the solution was. And I guess if I could say, there, if there was one thing that I think I, I wish I could have gone back on was, was to believe that I really did need a partner or need somebody, at least to hire somebody to handle that part of it. Because I was always, always, there was a dark cloud that was always over me. Even when we won Retailer of the Year, it was a huge dark cloud over my head uh, thinking about the and the way that I felt was it was like I had this beautiful apple that tasted so good and it was just everything that I wanted but deep inside there was like some mold growing <laughs> and you know if you don't cut that out if you don't fix that then eventually it will consume you and I couldn't fight back against it anymore uh, after a certain point and I just you know at the end of last year I just I didn't want to sully the uh, the reputation that I had built that all of my team had built with me uh, and I didn't want to let my clientele down uh, by trying to keep pushing forward when you know I, I just financially couldn't do it anymore and, you know, I gave everything that I possibly could. And uh, now looking at what's left, I've, I actually gave more than I could because, <laughs> uh, you know, but that's just what happens when you, uh, you put everything you have into it and it falls apart. So, All right. So speaking of that, we'll just, you know, go ahead and drop the other foot. So... About four months ago, you posted a picture, I think, of your soundscape hat that you had. I had, I had a whole bunch of hats, <laughs> and those were only some of them. I had, I had many, many, many hats, and you know, they would, they would start off as like a fresh new hat that I wore when I was shooting videos, to a hat that I wore around the shop all the time, to uh, then they would become a fab hat. 
in which that's when they got sweaty and disgusting and full of Bondo dust and all that stuff. And uh, when I when I thought about how to when I thought about how to share with the world that I had made that decision, I saw those. I saw a stack of some of those hats and I was like, you know, I have spread myself so thin at this point uh, that wearing all these different roles, and I, I felt like it was a, a fitting metaphor for what, how I felt. And, you know, I don't know. I just didn't know how any other way to say it. And, but I, I didn't want to, I didn't want something that I had believed in and, and, birthed from my own heart to wither and die in front of me, you know, uh, and to become, I don't know. I, I just, and plus, you know, digging the hole deeper every month with rent. I mean, <laughs> come on, man. <laughs> There's only so much debt that you want to walk away with. So, you know, uh, it was a, it was an extremely hard decision and I'm still having a hard time looking at that and, I do feel like I made the right decision, no matter how much it hurts. Uh, but, you know, I, I still feel like I, I have my pride and my dignity with the work that I did and the relationships I had and still have and the reputation that I cultured. And I don't know. Hopefully, uh, hopefully that's good enough for people. When at the time, too, I mean, it was uh, I, when things were getting beyond your control. Pierce was, uh, David, David Cruz had already moved to Florida. Um, Greenwood, I believe had already been working at Alpine. It was just you and Pierce for quite a while there, right? Yeah, that was such a rough situation. Pierce, Pierce is like, honestly, one of the best people I've ever known. I mean, as a, as a man, I know I call him the kid and stuff like that, but that, that guy is a man in more ways than, than most grown, most old men are. I mean, I, I, I I couldn't tell you how many ways, but his dedication to unbelievably dedication to me, uh, and the shop, um, was stretched way further than I ever could imagine at the time. And, it was one of those things where I felt, I, I do feel like I kept it going longer for him because I didn't want to make him go anywhere else. Um, I didn't, I didn't, he didn't seem to want to leave. <laughs> and, but the thing is, I think we were both doing it for each other, to be honest with you. Uh, and I would let him speak for himself, but, you know, we had to mutually come to the, the decision that, you know, this wasn't, I wasn't going to be able to change my mode of operation fast enough with the way I felt about my life at the time to do that 150% that is required in order to wear all those hats and to do all the work it took to do that. And knowing that he had a place at Musicar was such a huge relief for me because I knew that it was a shop where he was going to be able to continue to grow and he would be appreciated for as amazing as he is. And, uh, you know, I, I had, I had some optimism that I was going to be able to keep it going, you know, in some capacity on my own after he left. But, 
it became really apparent to me that that, that wasn't the case. And, uh, you know, I, that was a big facility. I mean, I had $5,000 a month rent plus all the, you know, the ser- debt service I had, you know, from past decisions and all sorts of stuff. So, I mean, there was only, and plus getting all the work done and the sales and the marketing, I mean, just everything at one time was, was really, a it was overwhelming. And, uh, you know, with the other aspects of my life, uh, missing it wasn't you know it wasn't easy to to feel this to fill the sails of the ship with unreasonable motivation anymore and um at some point you have to look at yourself and be like i need to be a whole person before i can help other people you know whether it's with their audio systems or or anything else at that point so and there's there's so much about it that seems so frivolous when you're in that you know I think both you and I have both gone gone through some fairly extreme uh, personal development we'll call it over the past you know six months and it's like man okay I get it you've got a buzz in your speaker or man okay I get it you know it's it, it of course I mean we put our we care <laughs> we, we, we want to do 100% in the, every one of those situations to do the best for the other person, for the, the good of the other person. But when you're so bogged down with what's in your, as you describe it, your bubble of, you know, importance, it, it becomes so overwhelming to the point that you no longer do those jobs as good as you could you don't do that service as good as you want to and then you feel worse about yourself because you're not doing everything perfectly the way you expect of yourself to do you start letting other people down and then it just train wrecks from there I, I, I'll admit I was oh god this is hard I w- there were definitely there are several clients out there and I humbly apologize to each and every one of them that sat there with me and saw me cry. Like not even, they weren't all longtime clients either. I mean, you know, when you're sitting down in a consultation, someone was for, for hours, you know, because you really care about what, what you're selling them and, and, you know, they are interested in, in who you are and, and why you would put this kind of effort into their, their car. You know, I, I've never really had much of a, of a line between what's personal and what's, you know, out in the world. So, you know, there are times when I just, I lost it and I, I would sit there and I, I would cry <laughs> and it's just not, that was one thing to, I, I just didn't, I couldn't do that. I, I just, it was too much. Uh, I was, I was an emotional wreck. I still not totally not <laughs> an emotional wreck, but, um, it, yeah. Do you, do you think during that time, I mean, you had personal stuff going on, plus you had the business going on, plus trying to keep all that together. I mean, was it all just kind of together self-fulfilling prophecy i mean was it all just did it all just come to a head at once or do you think one had more influence over the other i mean do you think do you think the personal stuff came crept into the business stuff or do you think it was just oh, yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah well the thing is is from 
uh, there, I mean, there was a certain point and I, before I closed up the shop, I mean, I had been there, I had been sleeping on the couch in the shop for a year. I mean, literally for a year, I, uh, I slept on the couch and I cooked my breakfast in the little kitchenette with a plug-in griddle, uh, which was my stay-at-home Waffle House uh, breakfast. I, I copied it. I literally, literally found out what temperature their grill is at. <laughs> and I also got the, I, I ordered online the exact same oil that they use. And I still, I still use that oil. So I was making my own Waffle House breakfast and, um, uh, and showering at the gym. And because I was dedicated to keeping that shop alive and to just investing myself 100% in it. And I thought that I could do that. Um, but when I realized that uh, uh, a lot of my, you just can't do that. You can't do that. I, when, you're, when you're grieving inside and you're having that hard of a time as a, as a person, um, it's hard to put on that face every day and, you know, be as productive, even though you're there 24 seven. Oh, there we go. K40. Thank you. Um, yeah, we're still driving. <laughs> I'm driving and talking about my horrible life at the same time. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, at the end of the day, this is a business that most people that I've, I know, and the most people that I've like met with, even on this trip that we've been on, you can tell there is a personal stake in what we're doing. It comes from the heart. I don't think anybody really chooses this because it's like, well, you know, they told me in high school that I should do this or, you know, I got the degree. So, you know, I guess I'm just going to do this now. Um, it's, it's something that you choose to do because you have an aptitude for it and you feel like it's, it's part of who you are. And when you, who you are is, you know, crushed, uh, then it's, it's very difficult to keep those pieces together enough to do your best at the shop. And when I realized that I was at a point where I wasn't getting the work done fast enough to be able to pay the bills and to be able to get the equipment for the next job, uh, on time, it was just, I realized that my clientele, my reputation were going to be the one things that suffered. And, uh, all it was going to do is just keep building debt. And I, I just, I couldn't make those promises anymore and, and know that I could keep them. So, uh, I just, a conversation with my best friend and my sister, uh, they were very honest with me about how they saw it. And, you know, I just had to, I had to make that decision. It was one of the hardest things in my life. So I've, I guess the reason that we're actually discussing this on a car audio podcast is for one, I think it's time for the, both the industry and the hobby to be real. I mean, we're all real people going through real struggle struggles. And sometimes we always try to put our, you know, best foot forward on Facebook and whatever else. And I think, you know, one of the, one of the great things about like the competition side for me is the fact that it's a real thing of people getting together in one space and we're not just jibber jabbering on Facebook and, you know, measuring each other's sizes. We're 
out there. It, it's proof of the pudding. We all get together and hopefully we make, you know, better sounding cars out of it. But this has always been such an emotional thing. I mean, all of it, whether you're in the industry or whether you're a hobbyist or whatever. I mean, just look at, you know, the, the wreckage on the car audio forums over the past 20 years and on Facebook and everywhere else. I mean, we're all very emotional about this stuff and we seem to be all a little bit hyper emotional people, but we never really talk about the emotional side of things and our growth from that and how car audio has affected that. Um, cause I, I know I, I wouldn't be anything like the person I am today. You know, I was in, you know, structural design and engineering forever. And it was a very black and white thing. I mean, there were ups and downs. It was, there were struggles like anything else. And yeah, you had your bad days and your good days, but it didn't have the emotional fortitude like this industry does. And I think there's something that draws us in to that. Um, and, but it also means like a hyper realism when things are good or bad, um, that, affect us all as humans. But again, we don't talk about that part as much. We all want to put this best foot forward. And sometimes things don't go as planned. Sometimes, you know, you don't get first place. Sometimes you're not retailer of the year. Sometimes things crash and burn, whether it's in your, you know, your home state, your emotional state, how you relate to the world around you, everything like that. So, I mean, so, you know, four months ago, posted a picture of your hat, things went dark a lot of people really haven't heard from you since <laughs> yeah um, I had actually you know kind of been realizing that there was a there was a uh, there was a, a kind of a habit that, that was going on that I didn't quite go along with uh, in our in the social media and stuff and you know putting in the effort and grinding and working hard and all that kind of stuff is admirable in so many ways. Uh, but if it's detrimental to your life, you have to draw the line because it's, you know, it's like being a doctor and it's like, well, if you work yourself to death, you can't save any more people. And I, that's, I, I put out a little, a little article, uh, called hashtag anti grind because, I felt like we're glorifying the grind more than we were the result. And I think that I think that it's just important to understand or to, to have a realistic view of, of what what's important to your life. I mean, and if, if all you want to do is just build stuff and work on cars and, and just do that, then by all means, put 24-7 into it. Um, but don't be surprised if you find out that other things were very valuable to you too that needed to be there as well. And I mean, I didn't walk away from my personal life, um, but uh, it, it definitely suffered for many years uh, for the amount of focus and effort I put into my business. And, you know, I just felt that I needed to, to do that in order to provide. Um, but I think I'm, I'm proof that, you know, you can only do that so much before you're not able to do that anymore. And I don't know. Every case is, is individual. And I, I know so many shop owners that have had this struggle and are having the struggle. 
And it's one of those things that like, shit, it's like erectile dysfunction or something like that. It's like, this thing is really important to me. <laughs> like I want this to work, but uh, I don't want to talk to anybody about it. And so that, therefore I can't get any help. And, um, there's a lot of, there's a lot of people that tried to help and give me advice. And some of it I took and some of it I, I, I wasn't very good at taking. And I don't know, I, I could go on for, for years on all the mistakes I've made, uh, related to soundscape. But, um, at the end of the day, I just didn't find that balance and, you know, that's what it is, you know? So what do you think, like any great tra- tragedy in, in someone's life, and again, you know, I, I don't relate with exactly what you've gone through, but again, I've kind of been forced to that edge. And there's, I, th- I think from the outside, you know, when you're when you don't really know what's going on with the other person and you don't take the time to understand what's going on with the other person you immediately judge that person through your lens of how you view the world and how you think they should have done things different and how you think where they went wrong and there's so many things that people don't know about when they do that you know there's so many things that that I mean, I, there, I'm not going to ask you to go through all the things, but I, I can say with assurity, you know, with some assurance that it wasn't because of the decisions that were made at the end of Soundscape's existence. It was more decisions that were made at the beginning. For ten for ten years, ten years of decisions from big to small to, you know. I mean, yeah, I mean, everything now, I mean, I made decisions that to try to correct that stuff and like going appointment only, uh, was a big step towards, you know, being able to manage my time better. Um, and, uh, you know, trying to create a focus that was more balanced between my home life and, and my work life. But, uh, you know, it's one of those things where sometimes it's just too late, you know? And regardless, I guess my point there is that don't don't assume because of the things that you've seen that things are swimming with somebody else good or that you know why things went wrong because there's always more, just like your life, (laughs) there's always more to the story behind it. Yeah, I mean, everybody's got their struggles, whether it's, you know, everybody has struggles, period. And, you know, when when something like this goes down, you know, it's, it's easy to make assumptions about what, what goes on. And, you know, some of them might be right. So, you know, some wrong, I don't know, but I think that the, I don't know. So that when I kept trying, I kept believing that I could put in 150%. That was my thing is I kept, I was like, I can do 150%, you know, and the truth is at the end of the day, you only have a hundred percent. We can be idealistic and we can be gung ho and we can be like, I can make that happen. I can do that. I can make that happen. But at the end of the day, you literally only have 100%. And if you put 100% trying to do 150 into your job, then other things are going to suffer. And if you're focused like that, you're, you might not even recognize what is suffering. And I know in my life, that's what happened. So, 
so in you know in my story it was I haven't had to change things dramatically from you know that I wasn't forced into total lifestyle change uh, because of my poor decisions leading me to the edge but for me my issue was was that I had so much uh, my meaning of life was tied so much to my job and my performance and my career that I still have that I'm still in nothing's changed you know I've been with hybrid doing relatively the same thing in what I would and others would consider a dream job for the past decade you know I've pretty much created my job position exactly as it is I work where I want how I want you know it's one of those things where yes I have to perform and do the tasks and everything else but that that's where things went off the rails for me because I had so much life meaning tied in with my what I did and me being right and being correct and doing better than anybody else in the world at what I was doing that it blocked me from doing the tasks in front of me that needed to be done and I just had no physical ability to do it it wasn't like I didn't have time it wasn't anything like that it was just I couldn't do the work I I found myself so many times either staring at QuickBooks or standing in the wood shop staring at at you know the routers knowing what I had to do knowing what the next step was but being so bewildered by this this mountain of expectation that I had vastly put on myself that I was I just couldn't and for the first time in my life I was like I am full on depressed <laughs> and the fact that I'm not able to do the thing that typically makes me feel really good or that it's it's stopping me from completing that made me even more depressed and I think that you know being an industry where we're we're mostly men you know we kind of tend to not open up about that and what it does to us you know on a personal and professional level um but i just you know it was just every every little thing was an enormous task and it was so hard to even get up in the morning and you know when you wake up in the morning you're already at work well you can't hide from it man <laughs> you can't so well, and just and at that point, every like you said, everything becomes a mountain. Everything, it, it's there's there's no way to distill it into okay, just do this task. That's all you got to worry about. Because as soon as you start doing that task, your brain starts working on everything else in the world that you got to worry about, and you're again, you're so worried about a thousand miles away from you that focusing on the thing three feet in front of you becomes literally impossible. I mean, there was no, you could have sat behind me with a gun pointed at the back of my head and said, you know, you do this thing that you've been asked to do. You have three days to do it. Just do it. If you haven't done it at the end of the three days, you're going to get shot in the back of the head. And I said, okay, do it now because it's not going to happen. <laughs> yeah, I, I totally understand that. And the thing is, is you want it. It's one thing if you didn't want to, right. to say, go ahead and pull the trigger. It's something you like but it's a, it's a whole other paradox to be like, no, I want to do this. I will be fulfilled by doing this. I would be happy that I got it done, yet pull the trigger. <laughs> because I, 
I am frozen by anxiety, fear, uh, questioning myself, uh, all that stuff. Just, I mean, just the whole gamut of emotions. And I mean, it's, I don't know at this point it's, it's, it's not even hard to admit that anymore. <laughs> well, and same here. I mean, for, for me during that time, you know, I, I got basically, you know, willingly using the alcohol as a substance to get through that time. And, you know, I can say that with some confidence now, but I mean, it wasn't, it was one of those things where it helped subside the anxiety for a minute and then it would help raise the anxiety up. And then, you know, the alcohol use would go up and then the anxiety went up, but really, you know, at the core, it was never one of those things where I was addicted to the alcohol. It was never an issue there. It was when I stripped the alcohol away and I said, okay, enough of that and put it to the side, then everything got way worse. And that's when I realized I had an addiction to the anxiety itself. It was like I had built this, I had built up this, you know, substance in my own body of you have to feel this certain way to operate. It's like it feels like normal. I mean, like I, there's, I mean, escapism is something that's, I mean, at that point, there's no, there's when you feel that way, I don't think there's any physical way to escape. And so, escape, escapism from an internal way, like that is is. I mean, I know I I definitely have done it still, <laughs> you know. And it's any kind of relief becomes the only thing that you care about. And you know, you can a lot. It could be any number of things. And I mean, I've for me, going out in the woods was the only healthy one that I found. I think, <laughs> and that's why I'm kind of living out there now, is because it it feels like a place to find my baseline and uh, try to repair. You know. So, what would you say over the past four months of? living in the woods and and kind of being away from car audio obviously I, I would say that this has maybe been a little bit of a culture shock for you coming back to it and and like going back to the thing that was so familiar with what took you down I mean I, I guess it was one of those things where for me even re-engaging even though I never left just making that decision to not leave did not walk away. You know, again, I wasn't pushed that point, but I was also in my head very much at that point. I was so ready just to walk away from everything, you know, regardless of what I built, what I've done, who would it affect, who it would affect. I mean, all of that at that point in my life, it didn't really matter. And I was ready to walk away. I finally, you know, got to the point where I made the conscious decision to take what I learned from it, how I had changed, how I'd improved as a person, and then reapply that back into, you know, what I had done and see if my change of perspective would change the outcomes. And it, it has, and it is, and it, it did. But, you know, for you, I guess, being able to take that full stop blank, here it is, I'm going full into the black, <laughs> you know, um, what would you say? I mean, is there something, and, you know, maybe we're at different stages right now, but, you know, during that time, is there something significant that you've learned about yourself that you wouldn't have if you hadn't have had the opportunity, if I can use that word, to go through this process? So, you know, 
walking away was largely just to do no harm. Uh, I knew that with my reputation and my the work that I was doing and my clients and all that kind of stuff, I was serving them better by stepping away uh, at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was also because I needed to, I needed to let the smoke clear. I mean, there was so many emotions and so many things going through me that I needed to gain perspective and realize what the real world was like again. And uh, I spent a lot of time in like meditating and sitting out in the woods, going for long walks and, you know, even doing another job just to kind of gain a perspective on what, what life in the real world is outside of, you know, owning my own shop for 10 years, you know, and silly, um, you know, cause I, I spent a decade locked into that. And then, you know, another 10 years before that on the hustle working for other people. So I don't know. Uh, I didn't know where I fit anymore. And I, on, to be honest with you, I still don't. Um, uh, going on this trip and shooting video and, and kind of like trying to pick up on the American soundscape stuff is, is more of a, you know, is this still something that uh, I can do and still is still beneficial to anybody? Uh, and it's not just me just doing it for the heck of it, you know? Um, but it's something that I can do. And I, I, I realize just from doing what we've been doing, I remember how much I love the community of people that I've dealt. I mean, Knowledge Fest, to be honest with you, Knowledge Fest every year is more fun. And I look forward to it more than Christmas. I mean, and I know I'm not alone in that because I get to see all my peers. I get to see people that I really look up to my friends. Uh, we get to, it's, it's a party of sorts, you know, I mean, I, you know, it, for, for the first time in, in 10 years, it's weird to think like, I, will it, will I get to go to knowledge fest this year? <laughs> you know, I mean, I don't have a business. I don't know what to expect. Are people going to like, be like, Oh man, that's, that's that loser that we saw last, you know, whatever. I know all this. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not saying that to you. I'm saying, I know those feelings in your head. There's so there's so much of a mental block there. I would say that I mean I I can say from a, a third person standpoint, being with you for the past week, that 100 percent of everybody who has come in contact with you and been exposed, you know, seeing you on the internet and everything else, and even you know your past employees <laughs> who have worked with you have all reached out and been like, man, it's so good to see you out, you know, and I think that's been amazing just to see the positive energy that has come from you just popping, you know, popping back out into existence for a minute. Well, yeah, I mean, I felt like that I needed to, I needed to cleanse my palate on the whole thing, uh, because this is something that I love. I mean, you don't put this kind of effort and time and pieces of yourself into it if you don't love it. And I needed to step back and get a perspective. And now I'm much, I'm a much calmer person than I was four months ago. Uh, I, and I, and I, to be honest, I, I, it's just, it's heartwarming the kind of reception I've had so far, even though 
you know, it's only been a few days really uh, since I kind of, I don't know, resurfaced. I never, I didn't even think of it that way, but, um, you know, everybody, I've, yeah, everybody I've talked to has been really supportive and, and, I, and I'm reminded of how important the people are, were to me and are to me. And, you know, uh, I feel like with all of your blessings <laughs> that I may continue to resume my, my life connected to car audio and whether it's just doing American soundscape or if it's doing, you know, projects with people at different shops or whatever. Um, I, you know, I don't see myself being completely gone from this, uh, for my life. I just need to kind of figure out, figure out where I fit in and where I'm most needed, I guess. And I don't think that owning a shop is it right now or at all <laughs> ever. <laughs> and, and I mean, I'm not going to speak for you, but I feel like we probably share a similar outlook here in that the time that it took to step back and focus on ourselves and, you know, both of us was this past winter. I mean, it was, we, we both kind of went through a similar struggle there at the same time. I had, you know, I had to keep doing my daily duties you were able to step back into the forest a little bit, but we both in our own way, you know, found ourselves, if you want to put it that way and, you know, reattached ourselves to the world and then we're able to come back out. But, you know, just to reinforce knowing what you've gone through, taking that seclusion and time for ourselves, I don't consider selfish even though it comes across that way at the time, oh, maybe even, to some people. I don't even care. <laughs> if, if you think it's selfish, I'm sorry. The fact that I'm here right now should it's be good enough. Bad. Yes. Right. I did what I needed to do in order to, uh, you know, I'm not any good to anybody the way that I was, period. And that was Same here, full stop. It, it was not going to, life was yeah. not going to continue as we knew it. Yeah, you can say whatever you want. I, I, I could care less uh, about about that part of it. I just, I really... I needed that time. I probably still need a little bit more time, <laughs> but uh, I think that you know, kind of uh, easing into you know into this and being, I don't know, somewhat non-committal <laughs> is is what's helping me see all of this in the kind of light that I need to in order to really, you know, reinvigorate that love again uh, in the in the right ways and not be motivated by outside forces you know I, I really need to do this in, in a way that's true to me so so what do you think is next step for Dan dude I just told you that I'm not gonna sit here and like try to predict my future <laughs> what's your ten what's your 10 year plan uh, to be 50 okay well I guess that is that's a good that's good hey we share that plan in 10 years we will both be 50 together man <laughs> no now right now I you know my plan is to you know have a garage, you know, I, I have a garage that I could fit my car in and then, you know, a saw table. Uh, and, uh, you know, I still like making things, obviously, and I want to build things. And I have I actually have a couple of projects that I have to do. Uh, one in particular that is, you know, I promised that I would do this project and I by hook or by crook, I'm going to do it. And, uh, you know, I need I need to a garage to do that. So I'm kind of working towards that right now. And, um, concurrently, uh, I figure my tentative plan at the moment, and I don't 
I don't, I'm not going to let anybody hold me to anything at this point, but my tentative plan is to continue shooting American Soundscape in the capacity that I can, and as much as people allow me to come into their shops and do it, um, and edit that and put it out, and uh, you know, hopefully, uh, do or film uh, any projects that I do in my own garage. Uh, you know, even if just on a personal project basis or whatever. So, uh, yeah, I, I, it's kind of a see what happens sort of situation. I understand how that goes. So uh, next time we'll we'll hang out and watch the YouTube channel in a van down by the river with Dan. Yeah. I think that sounds like yeah. the plan that we're going to go for. That's right. Yeah, definitely. My, you know, yeah. I'll be doing my installs underneath the, the shade of a tree. So you'll be a shade tree mechanic, a shade tree installer? No. Well, and sap gets on your car then, and then it makes the windshield all messy, and it just takes you off for miles and miles then. Yeah, yeah, I I don't like sap on my windshield. Well, on that note of wisdom, we'll talk to you later, sir. Thank you very much, Clifton, and uh, thanks for uh, coaxing me out to do this this trip because uh, it's reminded me that this world is still here and that uh, there's a lot of awesome people out there still, so.